You're listening to the free abridged edition of the Energy Transition Show. American coal. Nuclear energy. Natural gas. Hydro. Solar power. Wind turbines. We're becoming a monumental exporter of natural gas. This boom in the United States is not a bubble that's going away. The oil's still there. I'd rather pump it from another country and save ours, and then when the rest of the world runs out, hey, guess what? We can still turn on our lights. We've run into a problem where we have constraints, where there are limits now. The new phase we're going into related to the exhaustion of these resources, there's no replacement. This is a one-shot affair, and we're unprepared for it. Really, we do not have very much more time to get a handle on this problem. It's better to get to a renewable future, a sustainable future, sooner rather than later. Get there before we do the environmental damage, not after. For November 27th, 2019, this is the Energy Transition Show with Chris Nelder. Until recently, most oil and gas companies have managed to conduct their business without taking any responsibility for the daily damage their products do to the environment in the form of carbon emissions. And they have managed to conduct a decades-long campaign of disinformation, specifically designed to confuse the public, deflect responsibility away from themselves, and slow down action on climate change, even after their own research showed them that they were contributing to a potentially catastrophic and unstoppable new reality for our climate. They've gotten away with it for a few reasons. Because our laws have been set up in such a way that fossil fuel producers can privatize the profits and socialize the costs of their activities, largely thanks to the influence of those same producers. Because they've managed to embed the use of their products inextricably into the operation of modern society. And because they've accumulated vast political power through the exercise of that same monopoly privilege and the money that comes along with it. Today, they effectively own the right wing of American politics, as well as many other political entities globally. And as a result, the share of the general population that listens to their propaganda has succumbed to it, and now lives in a strange limbo in which they've been programmed not to believe what scientists say about climate change, yet have no alternate understanding of what's happening, because in fact, there is no alternate reality, there's just this one, and further have been convinced that there is nothing for them to understand, even as their own property is beset with devastating floods, fires, droughts, and other ravages of a changing climate. But that is now starting to change, mainly thanks to a few brave souls who have had the fortitude to legally challenge fossil fuel companies, as well as a handful of stalwart journalists. In today's episode, we speak with one of those journalists. Neela Banerjee is a veteran reporter who's covered energy and the environment for many years for publications such as the Los Angeles Times, the New York Times, and the Wall Street Journal. She now writes for Inside Climate News, where, along with her colleagues Lisa Song and David Hasmeyer, she conducted an eight-month investigation in 2015 into the early climate research that was conducted internally over four decades at ExxonMobil. Their nine-part series on it, which was based on internal company files, interviews with former company employees, and other evidence, was named a finalist for the 2016 Pulitzer Prize for Public Service, in addition to receiving many other accolades. There are few people who know more than her about what Exxon has known about climate change and how they've deliberately buried their own research and chosen to lie to the public instead, and I'm truly grateful that she was willing to speak to our subscribers about it. It's a fascinating history and one that anyone interested in energy transition absolutely must understand. 
Then in the news segment of this episode, we'll hail the world's largest new solar plant. We'll update the news on fracking in the UK. We'll review the latest prices for renewables around the world. And we'll have another exciting episode of Coal Death Watch. But before we get into the interview, I want to offer a hearty welcome to the students and faculty of the University of Freiburg, which is the latest university to take a site license to the Energy Transition Show for its entire campus. We're thrilled to have you all on board. And now our conversation with Neela Banerjee, recorded October 18th, 2019. So let's bring her into the conversation now. Welcome, Neela, to the Energy Transition Show. Thanks for having me. I want to start with the reporting that you and your colleagues, Lisa Song and David Hasmeyer, did for Inside Climate News in 2015, in which you told a 40-year-long story about Exxon's treatment of climate change science. And before we dive into your investigation, I'm curious about what other works you might have explored in this area, because there really isn't all that much of it. I think the most significant work I can think of was Steve Call's 2012 book, Private Empire, Exxon Mobil, and American Power, which I thought was Excellent. So what compelled you to research this subject? Well, we stumbled over Exxon. We didn't plan to do an investigation into Exxon's climate research. The way the project started was that we have an annual meeting every year of our newsroom, which is a distributed virtual newsroom, where we all get together in New York and we talk about what projects we'd like to pursue that year. And our founder and publisher, David Sassoon, had an idea for an investigation he wanted us to do. And it was prompted by a couple of things. One was that he was at a conference earlier, it was in late 2014, and Daniel Ellsberg spoke there. And he was talking about whistleblowers and for journalists to look for whistleblowers in different spheres of business and government, including the fossil fuel industry. So that got David thinking. At the same time, he was also reading articles about how the European oil companies that their scientists went to their top executives in the 90s and said, look, you know, man-made climate change from fossil fuels is real and we need to do something about it. So it got him thinking about, well, what were the American fossil fuel companies? What was their position? Were they following climate change in the 90s? So we came at it through a very broad mandate. And we talked to all sorts of oil companies, all sorts of fossil fuel companies. It cast a very wide net. The way we homed in on Exxon was that Dave Hasmeyer spoke to a veteran government scientist who had been working on climate change issues from the 80s. And he mentioned to Dave that Exxon had done very good peer-reviewed research with top academics and members of the government as far back as the 80s. So all of a sudden, you know, you weren't looking at the 90s anymore when the world knew about climate change. All of a sudden, you had an oil company looking at climate change back in the 80s. So that elevated Exxon's profile. And from there, we did some searches and so on, and stumbled across the fact that Exxon was doing this really ambitious research. So it wasn't stuff that we were reading. It wasn't an initial focus on Exxon. It was the fact that our reporting led to a narrowing of our focus onto Exxon, and then the materials we found in archives and privately gave us the package that we have today. Huh. Wow. So you weren't starting with some of the existing research. You just went back to original sources and did your own independent work. Well, I mean, we knew from what 
folks, journalists and activists had done, that Exxon had been the leader in helping build the narrative of climate change denial starting in the early 1990s, right, through the Global Climate Coalition and other things. So that part was well known, but that's not what elevated their profile. You know, there were other fossil fuel companies involved in that effort too. There was the oil and gas lobby in API, the American Petroleum Institute that was involved in this. So it was very organic the way we came to Exxon. It was just reporting and, you know, you talk to people, their authorities. And what happened specifically, if you want to know, is that Dave mentioned that the scientist told him about Exxon's 1980s research. And then I was on a listserv and somebody was passing around on the listserv a link to a congressional hearing from the late 70s about climate change, right? So we were just like, wow, that's really weird. Why is Congress talking about climate change in the late 1970s? So it piqued my interest. And I was truly, I was procrastinating. I was supposed to be doing something. I wasn't. I was reading this hearing transcript because I thought it was sort of curious and interesting. And then I thought, I wonder if anybody from any of the oil companies is there. And so the PDF of this hearing document was searchable. And I typed in each oil company's name, Texaco, Chevron, Shell, no pings. And then finally I did Exxon. And the name of a man came up, Henry Shaw. He was part of a group that had produced a report on climate change. And it had been produced the year before, like in 1978. And so I was like, who the hell's Henry Shaw? And why is Exxon the only company that has some kind of representation in this hearing. So it followed on what Dave had found out from this scientist. And it was truly just like me goofing around and looking in this document that we came across this connection. And that was the thread we started to pull that unraveled everything. (laughs) I love it. The upside of procrastination. That's great. Oh my God. (laughs) Who would have thought? I know. All right, so let's dive right in, starting at the beginning. Exxon was actually doing research on climate change in the 1970s, as you say, long before most of the world had heard about climate change. So why were they doing this research, and what did they find? So we can speculate a little bit about why, based on research that had gone on into man-made climate change starting in the 50s, and the oil industry's awareness of it. We know that there was important research being done in the 50s by American and international scientists about the link between fossil fuel consumption and carbon dioxide. And we know that there was some interest by the fossil fuel industry, like they had consultants who were monitoring this research and reporting back to them about the fact that the feds and academics were doing this research. And so that's our supposition based on documents that have been uncovered, that these oil companies had some of the best scientists in the world, and they very smartly followed trends, including emerging science, that would affect their bottom lines. So at Exxon specifically, why they focused on it, who was the driver of that focus, we don't really know. The documents we found took us back to about 1977 or so, And what we found was that Exxon had a research arm called Exxon Research and Engineering in northern New Jersey. At that time, Exxon's main offices were in Manhattan at Rockefeller Center. And the scientists in New Jersey were following the research. They were going to conferences, including 
Henry Shaw, the man I mentioned. When we found Henry through the documents, I, of course, immediately looked up, okay, where's Henry Shaw now? And he was deceased. He died in the early 2000s. But that said, when we finally got the internal documents that make up the core of our project, we found that Henry had gone to an important conference, I think it was in Florida and other places. So he was traveling the way an academician would, who's working on this, and then reporting back to not only his bosses at Exxon Research and Engineering, but they were telling the top management of the company about the emerging research into fossil fuel-driven climate change. So that was what was so compelling about the documents that Exxon didn't have deniability. They couldn't say that, well, we're a sprawling company and some distant corner of the company was doing research into climate change as some other corner of the company's doing research into, I don't know, better motor oils, right? This was something that a scientist named James Black from Research and Engineering reported to the top management of the company about in 1977. I mean, these are busy men. And if they're making time for this, then it's crucial to their understanding of how to go forward with their company. Right. So once they started following this research in earnest, the emerging climate research in the 1970s, there was a determination made. We don't know quite the specifics of it, but there was a determination made by the leaders at Exxon Research and Engineering with the blessing of the board of the company, which was all internal. They were all company executives that Exxon should launch its own ambitious research program. Hmm. And so what they did was they outfitted one of their newest super tankers with equipment that they built in-house to monitor CO2 levels in the ocean and in the atmosphere as this tanker went from a refinery in the Caribbean to the Persian Gulf, and obviously did this several times a year. So they did that. They hired climate modelers because a lot of the modeling at that time, there were a lot of uncertainties to it, so they wanted to do this modeling in-house as well. And they reported quite clearly, without mincing words, to their leadership that there wasn't a whole lot of time before we would start to feel the impact of climate change, that the combustion of fossil fuels was the main thing that was driving it, and that this phenomenon would influence decisions that companies and broader economies would have to make about energy sources. So it's the kind of thing that you think people would be discussing now, except they were discussing it back in the late 70s and early 80s. Hmm. So what did they do with this information they gathered from this super tanker? Right. So what they did was, it was a program that they invested in seriously, but there were some kinks to it. So it took them a while to get the information that they needed. But the program only ran a couple of years until it was shut down. And the reason it was shut down was because it got into the early 80s and the price of oil just plummeted. And so Exxon, like a lot of other companies, was looking for things to cut. This was an expensive program. And so they decided to mothball it. Nonetheless, they took the data and they gave it to 
scientists they'd been collaborating with at Columbia University, and one of them actually used it for a peer-reviewed study that came out several years later. The fact that Exxon scientists themselves were working on this project and had had this tanker outfitted with this equipment, that was published as a peer-reviewed paper, just a description of the project. It was a two-page paper in the early 80s. And that's how we ended up finding the researchers who were still alive. Henry Shaw's name was one of the authors, but like I said, Henry Shaw died many years ago. But we found other scientists who'd been working on it, and we talked to them about the project. So that's what happened with the tanker project. So were they trying to just pick up ocean temperatures, or were they looking at CO2 concentrations, or what? They were looking at CO2 concentrations when they had their super tanker project. So at that time, I think the observatory in Mauna Loa was the only one that was taking steady regular CO2 measurements. And Exxon had an idea, which is a pretty cool idea, that, well, how about, you know, we see how much CO2 the ocean is absorbing at different points through the Atlantic, the Southern Atlantic, and through the Indian Ocean. And how about we also check atmospheric levels along those routes too? I mean, it's a pretty cool idea. And among the documents we found was one of the managers at Exxon Research and Engineering who said, we should have monitors placed all over the world. Like we are the world's biggest company. Like this is something that we should do. Like people felt a moral imperative to do this. Hmm. And they also felt that there was going to be a policy response to this level of pollution essentially. And they wanted to have a seat at the table when politicians crafted those laws and regulations. And they thought the best way to have a valid voice in the process was to do rigorous peer-reviewed research with respected scientists. And that is the approach that they took you know, from the late 70s until the mid-80s. And that's why, for example, the, the data that they got from their super tanker project went to people at Columbia. So they understood the issue of the ocean's ability to absorb CO2. They were looking at CO2 concentrations, presumably in the air and in the water, and they were looking at temperatures. So once they got this data together, did they present it internally? Did they present it to the shareholders? It's unclear if they presented the data to the shareholders. They certainly discussed it internally. And like I said, they also did their own modeling so that they could better understand the models that they were reading about in the academic literature. They understood the whole issue of ocean absorption of CO2, also from keeping a close eye on the literature and talking to their peers in academia. Hmm. So there was a real focus on this. And what they did was they created a primer that they used internally. They shared with people, mainly I think on the middle manager level, on the engineering level. And we have a copy of that in the project and it's digitized and people can read it. And one of the things that jumps out at you is that they use the word catastrophic, right? Like the big question that they were grappling with is when is all of this going to hit? But they knew that once these changes started to occur, that for parts of the world, it would be catastrophic. And that was a word that we saw at least twice in these internal documents. So when was this corporate primer produced? I think it was 1982. Okay. So all the way back in 82, 
they really did have a complete version of the story about climate change. Like they knew what the fundamental factors were. They knew what the outcomes were going to be. They knew that there was a catastrophic risk somewhere at the end of it. I think Exxon knew as much as scientists and academia knew. There was a lot of uncertainty that they discussed. And in our reporting, we went to academics who'd been working in the field at that time and said, you know, the questions that Exxon is discussing internally that we see in these documents, are those valid? Or are we starting to see the seeds of the denial movement that they would pilot starting in the early 90s? Mm -hmm. And the scientists all, you know, independently of one another said, no, these are valid. This is what we were grappling with as well. So they were grappling with how much CO2 would end up in the atmosphere when, And what would those effects be? So those things that were not clear yet were also not clear to people in academia. But they certainly accepted the basic physical, you know, the chemical premise that if you combust fossil fuels, you are going to put more carbon dioxide into the atmosphere. And that's not a good thing. Right. But anyway, they clearly had up to date, the best information that was available at the time, state-of-the-art academic understanding of the situation. They did. Exxon did have state-of-the-art information. And Exxon was seen by, say, the federal government and others as a leader in research into the issue of man-made climate change as a potential partner. They attended, the Department of Energy had, I think, quarterly meetings to discuss greenhouse gas emissions and climate change. And Exxon went there along with people from other oil and gas companies too. And another thing that we should note is that the American Petroleum Institute, also starting in the late 70s, had a working group on CO2 and energy. And there were representatives from all the other oil companies there too. We know this because we found an agenda in the files that showed that Henry Shaw and some other people from Exxon went to these meetings and there were people from other companies there. There was a staffer from the American Petroleum Institute who ran these meetings. And so you know, we tried to track down all the different people whose names were on the agenda. And the staffer whose name was Jimmy Nelson, I believe, was still alive. And he lives about an hour and a half south of D.C. And so I went to his house and interviewed him about all of this. And he said that everybody was aware of the issue of fossil fuel combustion and the potential for climate change, but that Exxon's work was the most ambitious. Others did mostly modeling, but Exxon actually had the super tanker, had you know hired some of the best scientists, had more resources devoted to the question. Mm-hmm. But as you say, there was actually a whole lot of work in the oil industry, people looking at this, like the American Petroleum Institute, which is a lobbying organization that works for the oil and gas industry, formed this task force on CO2, which included scientists from nearly every major oil company, not just Exxon, but Texaco, Shell, Standard Oil of California and Gulf, which would later become Chevron. So there must have been some sort of consensus view or joint work that was coming out of this. From both my interview with Jimmy and the documents that we had, which were kind of scant on the API CO2 Council, they didn't do any joint work. What they did was their own internal work, but they kept each other apprised of it, and they discussed it with one another. They shared information. 
that was basically the extent of it, according to Nelson, because we didn't have any documentary evidence that they were doing any kind of joint work. We didn't have it from API. We also didn't have it from Exxon. Now, we haven't gone and looked in the archives of the other companies, but that's what we were told by the man who staffed it. And he said it was mainly to keep tabs on this because, remember, there wasn't a policy response yet. There was nothing to lobby on yet. And so that what they did was they they just made sure that there was a common understanding of the science, discussions about glitches and problems and whatnot. So, you know, API did have this task force and scientists and engineers who were representatives of all the major oil companies at the time did meet to discuss the science and offer ideas. But the difference is that this was all in 1980, and they offered these particular ideas of creating ground rules for energy release of fuels and the cleanup of fuels as they relate to CO2 creation, according to this one representative from Texaco, or trying to find new energy sources. I don't know what happened to those ideas, mainly because that was before oil prices plummeted. And any kind of ambitious ideas that oil companies had to look at alternative energy or to, say, clean up CO2, those ideas were shelved because everybody circled their wagons. Everybody pulled back from ambitious work because there was less money to be working with. We hope you've enjoyed this free sample of the Energy Transition Show. Our full episodes cover much more and are generally at least an hour long. In addition to two full new episodes each month, subscribers can also view interactive transcripts of our interviews and explore our extensive show notes with links to all of the research resources and news items for each episode. Our subscription podcast works in all podcast apps and players, including iTunes, and is downloadable. The first 33 episodes of the Energy Transition Show were free and always will be, so if you want to see what our full shows contain, feel free to check those out. Then we hope you'll become a member and support our show. In order to bring you the most unfiltered, unbiased, honest information we can produce, we have elected not to take any sponsors or advertisers. 100% of the revenue that makes the Energy Transition Show possible comes from listener subscriptions. To become a subscriber and enjoy our full offerings, just point your browser to energytransitionshow.com and click the Become a Member button. There are several ways to become a subscriber. Annual subscriptions, which include full access to our entire back catalog of full-length episodes, are just $60 a year or $5 a month. Monthly subscriptions are just $6.99 a month and give you access to the two most recent episodes. Single episodes can be purchased for $7 each. We also offer half-priced annual subscriptions for universities. Students can purchase individual subscriptions, or professors can purchase bulk subscriptions for their classes. Numerous educators now use the Energy Transition Show as coursework, and their testimonials are available on request. And finally, we offer site licenses with group discounts on annual subscriptions for all members of institutions, such as corporations, nonprofits, and universities. So join us today and support our ad-free, hormone-free, organic, handcrafted, artisanal podcast featuring high-quality, cutting-edge interviews and news about the most important story of our time, energy transition. And now a quick look at some recent news items. Item 1. The world's largest PV plant has started commercial operations in Abu Dhabi, United Arab Emirates. The 1.2 gigawatt Swahen project is owned by a joint venture between Jinko Solar, which provided the modules, Japan's Marubeni Corp., and the Abu Dhabi Water and Electricity Authority. 
Marobeni and Jinko Solar offered to build the project in 2016, with a record low bid at the time of 2.42 cents per kilowatt hour. Emirates Water and Electricity Company will buy all of the power generated by the plant under a 25-year power purchase agreement. The plant is expected to reduce carbon dioxide emissions by 1 million tons a year. Item 2. On November 1st, the UK government imposed a moratorium on fracking, saying it would not support future projects. The move came less than a week after a damning report from the government budget watchdog, which found that efforts to establish fracking across the UK... Well, that's it for this episode of the Energy Transition Show. Thanks for listening. You can find our show archive and give us feedback and suggestions at energytransitionshow.com and follow us on Twitter at Transition Show. Our theme music was by Mike Sugar and Mark Burnfield, who you can find online at mikesugarmusic.com. The Energy Transition Show is a production of the XE Network. <laughs>